the idea is that innovation is going to drive growth and growth is going to drive equity returns. That can be a bit of a bumpy ride, and that's why there's risk in the trade, but that's also the promise of greater returns. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. In a historic moment for international markets, the G7 group of countries have agreed to implement a global minimum tax rate of at least 15%. But how will these reforms impact corporate earnings? In today's episode, Chris Heeks, Alfred Lee, and Mark Rays discuss the ripple effects across the technology sector and provide an update on other areas of the market, including emerging market bonds, innovation-themed investing, gold, and more. Our experts also debate investing in Canada versus the United States as they see increased flows to ZSP, BMO's S&P 500 ETF. Before we hear from Mark, Chris, and Alfred, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETFs weekly insight call with our team of experts. I'm your host, Mark Reyes, head of product for BMO Game Canada. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening in. We're joined today by Chris Heeks and Alfred Lee, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk, where Chris works on equity strategies and derivative strategies, and Alfred now focus on index-based strategies. So welcome both. Thanks, Mark. Morning. Good morning. Let's get started. Uh, Let's begin with your views on a topic that has certainly caught the market's attention, which is the potential adoption of minimum uh, corporate tax rates globally, at least starting with the, the G7. How likely is this development to see the finish line? And how impactful is it to equity markets and particularly technology companies? Can you put it in context uh, with one of our tech-heavy ETFs, the NASDAQ 100 exposure with ZNQs at QQ? Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of details that would need to be settled. But let's, let's start with that. Um, you know, there's a press release of 150 words, and uh, you know, just as I as I preface, I, I'm going to credit CIBC. They just put out a great research piece, so I'm pulling many of these facts from this piece. But you know, the press release is 150 words. You know, if you've ever looked at the Canadian Income Tax Act, you know that it's a lot more than 150 words that could uh, you know could hold back probably a, a you know, a hundred pound door. Um, so there's obviously, obviously this is really preliminary. Uh, but, you know, certainly there is a movement, I think, and uh, to, to, um, to increase the tax kind of collection rates globally. And, and it does impact um, IT companies a little bit more than the average. If you look at the S&P 500, you know, again, some of these numbers are from the CIBC piece. You know, the average, the average tax rate uh, five years ago, it was about 27%. Last year, it was about 18%. You know, we know Trump, um, you know, tax cuts were a big uh, portion of his uh, policies. 
Um, if you look at the IT sector, to your point, Mark, you know their their tax rates have been below that of the S and P 500 average by by about you know three to five percentage points. So your average tax rate in um, in IT is about 15% last year. Um, so I think those are the kinds of things um, that are going to be addressed. I mean, obviously, we're in an environment where, and we talked about it, how much stimulus is happening from a monetary and fiscal perspective. Um, there's certain bills that are going to need to be paid and, and tax, and, and probably some of the corporate tax rates is the right place to go looking to do that. Um, but again, I mean, the devil, I think, is going to be in the details. I mean, even achieving consensus in the G7, you know, achieving consensus in the U.S. Senate, we all know how difficult that's going to be right now. Um, very, very close in the Senate. Um, you know, achieving consensus in the European Union is quite difficult as well. You've got a couple low tax jurisdictions like Ireland and Netherlands. And certainly, you know, I think, um, you know, Ireland would be somewhat loath to increase their tax rate, given that's a, a major driver of economic activity to that country. And then if you want to look further beyond that, you, you know, at the OCD, OECD uh, countries, there's 139 of them. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of work that's going to be done. Um, you know, in terms of the magnitude, I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to be a great shock. I mean, it's something investors, you know, as investors, we we tend to get concerned about things, but I don't think this is going to be a, a great traumatic shock. Um, I do think, you know, it's somewhat of an argument for ETFs because, you know, anytime you have this kind of tax change, I think you're going to, you're going to have winners and losers, right? Um, some companies are going to be much more affected than others. And if you're you're investing on a single stock basis, you know, that's something you want to probably understand. What are the, what are the risks, right? And, and then obviously some countries, so for, so for example, um, you know, the CIBC report, Micron was a company, you know, semiconductor company, tech company, that, that's potentially going to have more, uh, more of an impact than others. But I think it's all, you know, it goes back to make it a great argument for ETFs that it's, you know, being diversified, you spread out that risk over, you know, in the case of the NASDAQ, um, you know, it's approximately 100 companies. In, in the, that ZNQ and ZQQ. And um, it's not all tech companies in there, although it is quite tech heavy. So I think you you spread out your risks. And, you know, overall, it's, you know, it's one of those, probably more of a speed bump, but it's something that, you know, I, I do think could concern investors in the short period of time. So, you know, it's something to look out for. But again, I'd be surprised if we saw anything, you know, really coordinated from a global perspective happen anytime soon, just given all the, you know, things that are still happening in the world. So something to keep an eye on, I think. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. So summing up early days, <laughs> lots of hurdles out there, but certainly some noise going on around tax rates and, and the potential implications for, for companies that have been enjoying those lower rates over the last uh, few years. All right, next, let's move over to fixed income with uh, the movement we've seen uh, USD of late. We've been getting more questions on ZEF, our U.S. dollar-denominated emerging market bond ETF, which, of course, advisors have been using as a higher-yielding satellite. Lots of questions on the impact then on of the dollar. Can you walk us through the impact uh, of this currency change on our USD-denominated debt? Thanks. Sure. Um, so one thing I will point out is, for uh, merge market, uh, merge market debt is, you know, for a Canadian investor, when you invest in emerging market debt, uh, there's potentially two levels of currency that you have to consider. So, you know, with the first layer is, you know, when you're investing in the debt, 
Uh, there's generally two types of currency denomination that you can invest in. Uh, so for one is U.S. dollar denominated, which is otherwise known as hard currency. Uh, so U.S. dollar denominated debt uh, for EM debt tends to be a little bit more stable. Uh, it tends to be widely uh, accepted amongst foreign investors as well because it tends to be tougher to, tougher to, to be manipulated by the issuing country. Uh, the other option is locally denominated currency or what's otherwise known as soft currency. Um, it tends to be a little bit less stable um, because, you know, other than, you know, defaulting, the way out of debt for issuing countries is to devalue your currency or to inflate your way out of debt. So for U.S. dollar denominated debt, uh, it tends to be uh, more stable. It, it tends to avoid those issues that, have, you know, uh, that relate to devaluation or inflating your way out of debt. Uh, so for our emerging market debt ETF, uh, ZEF, what we do is we invest in the U.S. dollar denominated debt. Uh, ZEF uses, you know, for lack of a better term, a smart beta strategy. So it does tilt towards you know, countries that have a stronger GDP profile. And, you know, in my opinion, by doing this, what we're doing is you know, we're getting the best of both worlds where you get the stability of the U.S. dollar denominated EM debt. But by tilting towards countries with a stronger growth profile, you also lessen the default risk. You know, when I look at ZEF portfolio right now, it's about 72% invested in investment-grade uh, countries, uh, which from an uh, emerging market debt uh, portfolio, that's, you know, really good from my point of view. Um, but, you know, we've been bullish about emerging market debt from a credit perspective over the last five to six months, I would say. Uh, you know, to your point, it's a good way for investors to get higher yield. It's a good alternative for, um, you know, outside of U.S. high-yield debt for income-oriented investors. Um, but from a currency perspective, I think ZEF is looking really good right now as well. I mean, you know, when you look at U.S. dollar weakness over the last you know, three months, um, it, it makes it a lot easier for the issuing countries to generally pay back their debt you know, as their local currencies appreciate versus the U.S. dollar. Uh, you know, paying back that debt uh, becomes a lot easier. But you know, the other layer that of currency risk that investors have to look, uh, look out for is the uh, currency movement between the U.S. dollar and Canadian dollar. Um, so, uh, you know, as we all know, over the last year, year and a half, uh, the Canadian dollar has gone on this massive run since March of last year. And if you look forward, I think, you know, uh, if you look at sort of the expectations for the Canadian dollar, it's still going to look pretty good. I mean, especially uh, until the Fed starts talking about tapering, I think the uh, Canadian dollar is going to continue to look pretty firm versus the greenback. Um, so, you know, right now it's expected that the Fed's going to start talking about tapering maybe in late Q3, maybe in Q4. Uh, so one thing we do with ZEF is that we hedge the U.S. dollar exposure. Uh, so any upcoming weakness in the dollar, um, in the U.S. dollar, is essentially going to be mitigated through that currency risk. So, you know, um, for ZEF, you know, we like it from both a credit and currency perspective. And to my point before, I think ZEF is a good way for income-oriented investors to get you know, higher yield in the fixed income side of a portfolio, especially when you look at, you know, high yield debt right now uh, and the credit spreads, which are looking very tight. Um, again, you know, emerging market debt is a good way uh, to get income for uh, fixed income investors. Great. Thanks for that update, Alfred. Certainly a lot of questions coming in on, on currency and, you know, within fixed income, advisors don't really look to take on a lot of currency risk. So, Appreciate that update on ZEF. Next, uh, swinging back to the equity markets, we've been getting questions in this week around our innovation ETFs, which we've been positioning as a growth lead for advisor portfolios. 
as uh, Kathy Wood from ARK Invest is on, on the cover of Bloomberg Businessweek. Can you explain the collaboration between ARK and MSCI on our ZINN ETF? And give us the rationale for Kathy's continued faith in disruptive innovation, considering the bouncy ride this year. I think my favorite quote from the article is buying innovation on sale right now. So if you can get us an update on ZINN, please. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, you know, I think uh, anytime you can buy something on sale, that that, that makes it more interesting. Um, you know, I think the rationale in terms of, you know, innovation is, you know, from, you know, and I don't want to speak for Kathy Wood, obviously, she does a great job of speaking, you know, and, and, and you being on the front page of covers and being a real face for innovation and thematic investing. But, you know, the idea is that innovation is going to drive growth and growth is going to drive drive equity returns. Um, but, it, you know, that can be a bit of a bumpy ride. And, and that's why there's there's risk in the trade. But that's also the promise of of greater risk or greater returns, I should say. So the idea is trying to identify really innovative companies, you know, somewhat earlier in the growth cycle or mid of the growth cycle. You know, if you're in the late cycle of an innovative company, you're you know, probably not as innovative anymore, right? You know, if you're you're a late cycle innovation company, you're probably becoming more of a mature company. So, you know, for that reason, you're in a little bit more of uh, smaller companies, um, you know, ones whose business models may not be 100% proven yet, but offer great promise. And, you know, so looking at that perspective, I think, um, you know, and, and I'm not sure how Kathy characterizes her hold period, but it's, you know, she's looking 5, 10, 20 years out in a lot of these cases, um, so these are, you know, and at BMO, we, we like to call it mega trends, you know, which I, 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 lo- I love that characterization. These are mega trends that can play out over, you know, 5, 10, 15 years plus. And, and uh, you know, one thing obviously is difficult in equity investing is to predict the next month's returns. Um, but, you know, in, 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 in terms of innovation, we can see, you know, we can see that, um, you know, automation is playing a role. We can see that AI is playing a role. Um, you know, Bitcoin and blockchain crypto is even playing a role. So we can see long-term trends that are that are playing out, and um, and that's what innovation investing is all about. Now, in terms of the partnership, um, you know, I think Arc was an obvious one. Like I said, they are the face of uh, thematic investing. And I and and Mark, I'm going to get into your head a little bit as as, as a head of product here. But I mean, in terms of creating a product at BMO, um, naturally a logical partner to seek out here. So uh, the BMO product is based on an MSCI index and the MSCI index is based on a collaboration between MSCI and ARC. Um, So it's really leveraging, you know, that great um, IP intellectual property that ARC has, their deep understanding of thematic um, exposures and how to screen for them. And then, you know, MSCI obviously is a very seasoned index provider who can you know, package it up and set the regular screening, the discipline screening, diversify the portfolios to to our to our needs and to what we think works well for investors. And so it's it's a great partnership, and um, you know gives the BMO product the ZINN, uh, the ZIN, um, you know, a product that I that I personally feel is very in line with our DNA as an ETF provider, which is you know giving investors exposures, but you know very robustly constructed, liquid and diversified. Um, you know, if there's a difference, the ARC ETFs, they tend to be more concentrated 
you know, they tend to rely on more qualitative judgment as well. They have more of a classic fundamental research model where they're, you know, they're meeting with companies. Um, they're doing, you know, group research, um, you know, brainstorming type, you know, approaches. Um, and that's great. And it's working very well for them. But I think the BMO DNA, you know, style of more of an index-based um, disciplined approach works very well for us. Um, so that's, you know, it's, it's a great partnership. And I think one that's going to work out well over time um, because, you know, like I said, these are, these are mega trends that, you know, I think we can be pretty confident are going to continue over the long period of time. Uh, but we recognize they're volatile um, in shorter time periods because they're more growth, um, more growth focused companies. But, you know, as you mentioned, there, it's been a bit bumpy. They're getting a little bit of a, another push to the upside over the past uh, three, four weeks in the Zen. Um, notice one thing that tech investors have been worried about, maybe overly worried about, in my opinion, is the 10-year rates. Uh, but they've started to cool off a little bit in the U.S., back down under 1.5%. And you've seen a little bit of a bounce back in tech and certainly helping the Zen. So, um, you know, you can never be sure, you know, you're, you're buying at the, the best time. But I think, you know, it's, it's better than the list price back in January. And if you can have a long-term time horizon on these products, I think that's the right way to look at it. And, um, and um, you know, they, they certainly do offer that potential for, for, um, for a higher return than the broad market. So um, quite excited about this product and, uh, you know, think as a long-term hold, it can offer value for investors. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. And absolutely bang on, you know, trying to position these ETFs as identifying a growth opportunity within portfolios. Certainly uh, long-term trends are, are quite exciting when you look at the disruptive innovation under the hood of these ETFs. You are listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to check out our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite. Tune in to episode 75 in the same podcast series where we take a deeper look at genomics-focused ETFs, including the BMO MSCI Genomic Innovation Index ETF, ticker ZGen. Learn how this new frontier in healthcare can deliver long-term benefits for growth-oriented investors. Last one for me, if we go back and look at flows for last month, ZSP or S&P 500 ETF, uh, certainly led the way. Can you give us your update on investing in Canada versus U.S. equities, considering the run year to date that Canadian equities have enjoyed? Thanks. Yeah, so, you know, we've seen some pretty strong inflows into ZSP over the last month. Uh, one thing I will point out is that, you know, ZSP is a, a $9 billion ETF and, you know, one of the largest, if not the largest ETFs in Canada. So, uh, you know, why I bring that up is because there's a lot of institutional usage with ZSP, uh, which could create a lot of noise. So even though we saw pretty strong inflows in the ZSP, um, it's not always necessarily an indication of sentiment. And, uh, you know, um, from month to month, you could have institutional investors, you know, truing up their strategic asset allocation positions. They could be, you know, switching from another ETF into ZSP. Uh, so it could skew the numbers from month to month. But, you know, what I do think it is, is it's a good demonstration in how an ETF can absorb, you know, institutional size tickets with, you know, very little or, or no market impact at all. I mean, obviously, this one is uh, tracking the S&P 500, which is, you know, the most liquid equity market in the world. Uh, but in terms of your question, in, in terms of U.S. versus Canada, 
Uh, I personally like Canada both on the equity side and the fixed income side right now. So when you look at Canada, especially in the equity space, um, you know, the three big sectors, finance, energy, uh, materials, um, obviously, you know, those make up, you know, 70% of the Canadian market. Uh, but when you look at commodity prices right now, uh, what's driving commodity prices higher right now is the you know, supply and demand imbalance, especially you know, when you look at anything from lumber to oil to, to copper, whatever it may be. Um, but when you look at, you know, whether it's four months, five months, six months down the road, uh, I don't think that supply and demand imbalance is going to get, you know, resolved anytime soon. I think if anything, it gets further strained before it even gets better. So, so I think, you know, as people get, you know, further uh, vaccinated and as the uh, economy continues to open up, that demand is going to come back online uh, much sooner than supply can come back online. So, you know, if you take oil for an, for an example, um, you know, with the summer, summer months coming, uh, there's more demand for people doing road trips, people uh, driving, uh, people going back to the office, which requires commuting as well. But then there's also, you know, business travel, leisure travel, which is going to uh, create additional demand for oil. Uh, but then when you look at, you know, supply, uh, the oil rate count in the U.S., for example, that's not going to come back and, and, you know, on time to offset that increase in demand. So I think, you know, those increases in commodity prices are uh, probably going to be here for at least, you know, the short term, you know, for the next five to six months. Um, so I think that's going to be good for Canada in general, given that our, you know, we have a lot of commodity exports. Uh, in terms of finance, I think, you know, banks are really well positioned right now, which is good for Canadian equity markets as well. Uh, Chris did made a couple of good points on on banks. I think it was you know, a couple of podcasts ago, I think two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, overall, just in uh, what we're seeing with the yield curve, you have a steeper yield curve over the last four to five months. Uh, that generally is good for banks, especially Canadian banks that do a lot of lending. Um, so a good way to get exposure to the Canadian equity market is, you know, ZCN. Uh, which tracks the S&P TSX cap composite. Uh, it's seen some pretty strong inflows of, of its own. So uh, it started the year at a $4.5 billion uh, market cap. I, I looked at it this morning, it was closer to $6.5 billion. So that's you know, $2 billion in uh, growth, partly due to market, market growth, uh, but also due to a lot of inflows from institutional and retail investors as well. But you know, personally, you know, as I mentioned, I like that. I, I continue to like that Canada trade, but the way I would like to play it right now is through ZBC, which is our uh, Canadian value ETF. And the reason why I like this ETF is because, in addition to getting exposure to those big three Canadian sectors, uh, you also get that value tilt as well. So with this ETF, you know, we're tilting towards uh, companies that measure well on three specific value metrics: so forward PE ratios, current price to book. Uh, enterprise value to cash flow from operations as well. Um, so in my opinion, with this ETF, uh, you're getting essentially two good themes rolled up into one. You're getting that Go Canada theme that we've been you know, pretty bullish about over the last several months, uh, but also that rotation into value, which has been pretty prevalent over the last uh, several months as well. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. Uh, good update on, on markets north and south of the border. Uh, with that, I would like to check in and see if there are any questions for Chris and Alfred. Yes, good morning, gentlemen. I have a question on gold. Um, seeing that both gold and gold equities, I really trended upwards since uh, April. Uh, so I wanted to ask if you can give some thoughts on, on what is driving this. 
And, and secondly, um, wondering if you could comment on what exposure might be best for inflation protection. So do I want direct exposure to the bullion or exposure to gold producers and, and miners as in uh, your ETF? Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think, you know, typically when you look at gold, um, gold is simply used as a hedge for three things. Uh, there's a hedge against macro risk. Uh, there's a hedge against a weaker U.S. dollar. And then there's a hedge against uh, inflation as well. Um, so overall, I'd say, you know, from last year or a year ago, people were buying gold for a hedge against macroeconomic risk due to COVID. Uh, but after the Pfizer news came out in early November, uh, people started selling their gold positions uh, in favor for equities. Um, so in, in the recent months, I think you know, if you look at gold prices, uh, they've been on the upswing again, mostly due to uh, U.S. dollar weakness, partly due to inflation as well. So, you know, if you look at uh, the U.S. dollar, um, you know, we've been talking how the U.S. dollar has been weakening versus the Canadian dollar. But uh, when you look at uh, the U.S. dollar index, which is a trade-weighted basket, um, versus the U.S. dollar, that's also weakened as well. So, um, you know, looking at a chart of the U.S. dollar index, it started weakening at the end of March, which coincides exactly with, you know, gold prices and when they started turning up. Uh, but in terms of your question of gold bullion versus gold companies uh, in an inflationary environment, it really depends on the scenario. I would say, you know, gold bullion typically uh, performs better uh, when there is, you know, an economic crisis and there's an equity market deleveraging. Um, but right now, you know, ec gold equities have outperformed. Um, I think, you know, when markets are normalized and the equity markets are not concerned about a crisis, um, you know, gold equities tend to outperform during those periods, especially when you look at you know, the gold futures curve when it's upward sloping or, you know, what's otherwise known as contango. Um, typically in that environment, you know, gold companies tend to perform better because, uh, you know, they trade off of forward prices, not off of uh, spot gold. Um, so it really depends on the scenario, but I think right now, given the economic backdrop and the setup that we're seeing, uh, potentially gold companies can outperform gold bullion. I um, I had a question about global infrastructure. Um, it's been building a base for the last few months, and now it kind of looks like it's breaking out. Uh, what are your thoughts on ZGI and uh, alternative assets? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, all. I'll jump on this one. So, you know, ZGI and alternatives, you know, to me, alternatives are really about building better portfolios, um, you know, recognizing that there's more than just equities and fixed income out there that we can build better portfolios with different tools. Um, I look at ZGI very much in the in the same way. You know, it's composed of listed infrastructure. Um, but still, if you look at the kind of the, you know, the, the exposure tends to give you some diversification versus broad indexes, um, lower correlation versus broad indexes. So it can be a really effective kind of satellite tool in a portfolio to build you, uh, you know, a better risk return outcome um, overall. Um, yeah, like that said, it's, you know, the more defensive exposure, I would say, had not been um, in, in too much favor up until kind of a couple months ago. You know, one big component of the portfolio's pipelines are about 30%. Um, that's really been the driver the last couple months. Um, I actually saw some interesting research um, yesterday in a couple of the sectors that they flagged as the most undervalued um, going back, you know, about 20 years uh, are energy and utilities. So if you look at those two sectors, um, they're below their average valuation 
you know, that's pretty beneficial for global infrastructure. And, you know, the other big piece of that portfolio is uh, the cell tower infrastructure, you know, and, re- and those are actually technically uh, classified as REITs. And we've been seeing a nice upward trend in REITs in the past um, past few, you know, couple months. And, you know, the cell towers have participated in that as well. So definitely the pipelines have been the leaders followed by, by the cell tower REITs. And, uh, you know, utilities are kind of flattish, but they're looking a bit undervalued. Um, you know, we always talk about the demand profile. There's always going to be demand with um, infrastructure. Biden's kind of working on a package. Um, you know, I read they're having a little bit of debates as they as they like to do. But, you know, we can be pretty confident that, you know, the demand is there on a long term basis and it's quite significant. So, you know, I think it's a great addition to, you know, a portfolio to have in a satellite position, you know, like an extra five, you know, maybe five percent, 10 percent, depending on your depending on your kind of overall profile. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it's, and it's breaking out. So, you know, we do think it's a great piece to uh, complement portfolios. Hi, um, I'd, I'd like your thoughts on uh, ZPR for the next 12 months holding period, please. Um, sure. I mean, you know, I, I think it's uh, pretty positive. I think when you look at you know, the tailwind that have really driven uh, ZPR and the you know, preferred share market in Canada, uh, over the last 12 months, I, I think they're still in play. I mean, you know, when you look at, uh, it's, it's really been driven by demand for yield. Uh, that's still in play. The risk of rising interest rates, even though interest rates have abated over the last, you know, four weeks. I think, you know, as we get uh, to the later parts of this year, I think we're going to get an uptick in, in rates again. Uh, demand and supply of the underlying market, uh, that continues to be a big driver as well. Uh, so we continue to see a lot of issuance of LRCN notes, which is going to be, issued in order to raise capital to, you know, uh, redeem outstanding preferred shares. So uh, all three of those conditions are still on the table. Um, I think the demand and supply uh, of the underlying preferred share market, I think that's going to be further stressed over the new year or the next year. Um, so I think that PR is still very well positioned. I think it's going to be in high demand. Um, you know, when you look at the performance of ZPR over the last year, year and a half since the market bottom in, in March, um, it's outperformed the equity market. And when you look at the volatility levels, the volatility has essentially been the same level as the bond market and, and lower in some cases as well. So, um, you know, I think it's a very unique situation for the Canadian preferred share market right now. And I think over the 12 months, next 12 months, um, I think a lot of those tailwinds are still very much in play. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate you listening in. Of course, thanks to both Chris and Alfred, Uh, some really good insights, uh, some really in-depth answers to some of the questions from myself and from from advisors on the line, so appreciate that. And with that, just want to thank everyone one last time and wish you a good day. Thank you to Chris Heeks, Alfred Lee, and Mark Reyes for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about buying growth at a discount with ZINN, our innovation-focused ETF. And we learned about the benefits of managing currency risk in fixed income with ZEF, an emerging markets bond ETF that's hedged to Canadian dollars. Our experts also dove into index strategies like ZSP, inflation protection with gold, and infrastructure spending with ZGI. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca.
The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.